Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Kagan. In tonight's show, the long history of the Bretons from the time of the first farmers around 5400 BC to the present. The English poet and composer whose life was haunted by fighting in the First World War. The rise and role of strategic air command in the United States. Women fighters of the Jewish resistance. And to end the show, we'll be asking when America stopped being great. Last week, we looked at the life and work of the romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge and debated his legacy. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with Bretons and Britons and the fight for identity. What is it about Brittany that makes it such a favourite destination for the British? Well, to answer this question, a new book explores the long history of the Bretons from the time of the first farmers around 5,400 BC to the present and the very close relationship they have had with their British neighbours throughout this time. The book is called Bretons and Britons, The Fight for Identity. The book is published in hardback by Oxford University Press and I'm delighted to welcome the author Barry Cunliffe to the show tonight. Barry, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. So let's answer that question then, maybe straight up. Why do British people love Brittany so much? Well, I think um, one of the reasons is that we're all part of an Atlantic community, really, and we have been for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, you know, it's, it's normal to think of Britain as an entity, but it, it isn't. Uh, we really got two stories. We've got an east side story and a west side story. And it's the west side story that links us to Brittany. After all, um, if you think of it, Ireland and, and Wales and southwest Britain and Brittany, uh, all are peninsulas jutting out into the ocean. And it's, it's the Atlantic Ocean that, that, that joins them up. And people have been using these Atlantic seaways on and off for thousands and thousands of years. So um, we've intermarried, um, we've traded with each other, we've shared ideas, uh, and occasionally we've fought. And it's fascinating what you say there about geography, because uh, that does seem to be such a, a crucial part in it. And talk to me about your own interest uh, in Brittany and your own engagement, because it seems to be a, a personal project uh, for you as well. Yes, I'm, I'm afraid it, I, I'm very much in love with Brittany and the Bretons, as 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 you say, so many English people are. Um, I first... Um, got involved with it um, when I was an undergraduate. And um, I found uh, a Bronze Age bracelet in uh, Hampshire, which was very much like one in Brittany. And um, when I did a little bit of research, a name came up, um, a man called um, Gilles, Professor Gilles. Uh, and I wrote to him um, as, a, as a young student. And I said, look, here's a photograph of a bracelet I found. Um, looks like your Breton ones. Can you tell me anything about it? You know, very innocent um, young, youngster writing to a very senior person. And he came back um, full of friendship, uh, full of information. And uh, that started this, this link. And over the years, I got to know him very well. And he sent me his off prints and his work. And uh, when I went to Southampton University as a, a professor of archaeology, of course, we were just across the water and we used to visit each other quite a lot. So uh, it really starts at, at, at a personal level and then goes on um, later. Um, I made many friends in Brittany and, and one of my old friends, Patrick Gallew, who is a 
Roman specialist in Brittany, once said to me, why, why don't we do an excavation together um, in Brittany? So I said, yes, fine, where? And he came up with this wonderful site of Leode, which is on the north coast. It's a promontory jutting out into, the, into an estuary um, and, and clearly linked with the sea. And it was used... Uh, in the Iron Age, it was fortified, it was used by the Romans, it, was, it continued to be used, it's still a village now. And uh, we did about um, oh, 10, 10, 12 years of excavations there, a, a British and Breton team working together, and had a, had a great time and, and made some very important discoveries as well, adding to the history of Brittany and, and the links between Britain and Brittany. So it, it's um, personal uh, and it's serendipity, really. But um, uh, what, what fascinates me about it is is the sea link, and it, that always has been something that has um, sort of run through the work I've done, the movement of people along the Atlantic. What also runs through this book is the is the theme of the subtitle of the book, the fight for identity, and what comes across very clearly and strongly is the the way the Bretons really are fight to to maintain their distinctive identity. Uh, yes. Um, but, they're in an awkward position, of course. They're on a peninsula. Um, if you're on an island, uh, it's easier to maintain your identity. You've got the sea around you, and it's easier to fight people off. But the Bretons are on, on this uh, long peninsula jutting out in, into the Atlantic uh, with one, one, its northern side running absolutely parallel with, the, um, with southern Britain from about um, Hampshire across, along to, to Cornwall. Um, and uh, they've got a land barrier. And over that land barrier, people have tried to come the, um, throughout prehistory and, and through later history, the Franks and, and, and so on, have um, tried to um, move into Brittany and take over Brittany. And there has always been this argument uh, between the Bretons wanting to maintain their own culture and the French um, regarding Brittany as, as essentially part of France. Um, so um, what they've tended to do uh, over the years is to um, look out to their neighbours by sea. Um, that's both the, the British and the Irish uh, and, and the uh, people who lived in the uh, Iberian Peninsula in Spain and Portugal. They've, they've looked to that area for their friends to sort of help them um, put up a, a fight against the, the, the French coming in. And there's a famous saying uh, that, that goes on and on and on in, in Brittany, we are not French. They, they feel that very, very strongly. There are also some wonderful connections with Ireland that we see and it goes back thousands of years to the to the interest in metals like copper and, and tin and gold. But uh, then also in more recent centuries when there is there is interest in this Celtic identity. Yeah, yeah. Um, if, if you want to look ask when the first real evidence is, I think um, it has to be around 4,350 uh, 4, BC. Um, and you have a, a wonderful Mesolithic site called Ferreter's Cove. It's on the, the Dingle Peninsula. It was um, excavated um, very thoroughly and very, very well um, a few years ago. Um, and it was hunter-gatherers, people who um, didn't have uh, any form of agricultural or domesticated animals. Um, and they lived entirely by hunting and gathering. And um, what the excavators found was that 
in among the, the debris, there were bones of domesticated cattle and also some polished stone axes. Well, um, they didn't have domesticated cattle and neither did the British at that time. They were hunter-gatherers too. So um, the domesticated cattle or much more likely, I think, sort of sides of beef that had been smoked uh, had to be brought in to Western Ireland by boat and uh, the nearest place uh, from which it could come would be Brittany. So I think that is one of the first um, observable links uh, between uh, Ireland and um, and the Breton Peninsula. And then, as, as you say, it goes on. Um, probably the most spectacular link uh, are your wonderful chambered tombs, you know, places like New Grange and Nauf in the Boyne Valley, those spectacular monuments. Well, that idea of the um, big tomb with um, a, a passage leading from the outside into the central chamber, we call them passage graves. That idea originated in, in Brittany. Uh, a lot of work has been done on it recently, and the, the consensus is that it, it began um, somewhere around in the 5th millennium, anyway, 5th millennium BC, um, in the Montbion, uh, the, the southern part of Brittany. Uh, and uh, the idea spread from there down into Iberia, into Portugal and, and northern Spain, and uh, up into uh, the Irish Sea. And we see the early ones, the early versions of these passage graves along the east coast of Ireland, in, in Wales, and the west coast of Scotland. So this suggests that people were um, making these these journeys, these sea journeys, and um, that they. There must have been real people moving because the idea of the passage grave, the art that goes with it, the architecture that goes with it, the belief systems, the cosmology, the understanding of the um, sun, uh, behavior of the sun on the solstice and so on. All that knowledge, um, which developed uh, almost certainly in Brittany, um, spreads uh, into uh, the Irish Sea region and is um, encapsulated in, in one of your great monuments, the Newgrange tomb. Wonderful connections indeed. Well, the book is called Bretons and Britons, The Fight for Identity. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Barry Cunliffe. And Barry, thanks so much for telling us all about this tonight. Not at all. Thank you for asking me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Ivor Gurney wrote some of the most anthologised poems of the First World War and composed some of the greatest works in the English song repertoire. For example, Sleep. Yet his life was shadowed by the trauma of the war and mental illness and he spent his last 15 years confined to a mental asylum. And a new book presents the first comprehensive biography of this extraordinary and misunderstood artist. The book is called... Dweller in Shadows, A Life of Ivor Gurney. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press. The author is Kate Kennedy. And Kate, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. Very pleased to be here. He's a a fascinating figure. He's not someone I I, I was familiar with before. And what really struck me was the tragedy of his life. The, you know, the the battle uh, with mental illness, with the, I suppose, coming to terms with the trauma of the war. And then, of course, that whole experience of of fighting in the First World War and being haunted by it. Yeah, absolutely. 
it is an extraordinary life. If, if you never wrote any wonderful poetry and music, the life itself is worth telling. Um, it, it feels that he had the kind of really every possible obstacle thrown in his way. And uh, one of the things I'm really interested in is you know, how how do you use art and creativity to fight overwhelming odds? You know, he's 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 fighting for for his life and his poetry. He's writing into anonymity. He's writing into an asylum that doesn't recognise him really much more than being a, a number rather than a name. And nobody really is listening. And and his poetry and his music are are sort of standing up against that and creating something very beautiful in resistance to it. He's an extraordinary man. And he had quite, I think, horrific experiences on the Western Front, including uh, being wounded and also being gassed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and interestingly, the, the being gassed was probably really fairly minor, but it was the thing that was his ticket out. It, it got him from, um, from Ypres back to England. Um, and it was essential that his friends told the Ministry of Pensions that he was gassed and that that was why he was no longer able to fight. Actually, it was probably more like a breakdown. Um, but, you know, it's, I mean, who wouldn't have a breakdown after spending 15 months on the Western Front? It was, it was absolutely horrendous. He was incredible to have survived as long as he did. How did you come across him? Because, again, as I said, he's not someone who I would be familiar with. Was he someone that you would have known about? Well, he's, he's the kind of person that people know a little of his poetry or they know a little of his music, but what they know they really, really love. So you mentioned the song Sleep. It's, it's generally everybody's favourite art song. You know, I, I heard it at school and then heard it again at music college and I didn't really know who Gurney was, but I was just transfixed by him. There's something about it that is so restless and so beautiful and so powerful. And he, he has a way of kind of communicating emotion just so directly. And again, with his war poetry, it's in all the anthologies. You know, if you've heard of Secrets of Stone and Wilfred Owen, you've probably read some Gurney. Um, he's, he's there, he's taught at GCSE and A-level, and, but, but we don't know much more of his work. And in fact, that what I discovered when I started working on him was that there is a massive material that's just not known at all, that's not yet been published. All the stuff that he was writing all the time he was in the asylum is still sitting in boxes in an archive, and there's some incredible material there. And how does his war poetry compare to the to the other war poets of the era? Uh, it, it it is uh, much anthologized. It's uh, some of them are are very popular and very famous. Uh, but how does how does his work stand and compare to the others? Well, the the interesting thing about Gurney is that, like the the tiny minority of war poets, he was a private soldier. So he was one of the men. He wasn't officer class. So soon and Owen were officers. And so their version of the war was a bit different. They were giving the orders and they had a, a more detailed overview of what the plans were and what was going on. Gurney is all about the kind of the granular detail of just staying alive. You know, the, the smell of the bacon cooking on the, on the Tommy cooker in the trenches, the waiting for the post to arrive, whether or not you get any coffee that day. Um, and the, the accents of the men around him, he loved it when he, he was put in a trench with men who might sing folk song or had Irish accents or Scottish accents. He, he loved dialect. And so he's just observing and, and picking up the little details, the unexpected details, and it all comes out in his poetry. It's, it's very immediate and very fresh. And you get all the, the horror and all that kind of stuff as well, but there's not that much of it. It's not like, you know, sort of Wilfred Owen's um, you know, kind of 
brutally grueling depictions of being gassed or of these kind of sort of horrorscapes of the trenches. Gurney's very funny and and he's in love with the men around him and and fascinated by France. And we get all that all that detail and all that kind of vivacity in his work. He was committed to a mental asylum in 1922 and things really seem to have taken a, a, a dark turn. He, How bad did things get for him? Because I think at times he thought he was Shakespeare. He seemed to uh, believe that people were conspiring to torture him. It seems to have got very dark. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's not many people's idea of fun being <laughs> committed to a, to a lunatic asylum for the rest of your life. And it was absolutely desperate. Um, but the thing is with Gurney, he, he had something like bipolar disorder, schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, whatever we might call it now, which, of course, the terms wouldn't have meant anything like the same 100 years ago. So he was in a, he was in a mess. You know, he would sit with a cushion on his head to ward off the electrical waves. He believed there were machines under the floor torturing him. He, he was delusional. But alongside that, he was also utterly sane and utterly capable of writing brilliant work and of having very sane conversations and being likable and, and being very functional. So there's this kind of extraordinary discrepancy all the time. And when he says you know, years into the asylum, he believes he's Shakespeare, kind of, yes, of course, on, you know, on paper and in the cold light of day, it's mad. But equally... He adores Shakespeare. He wants to be Shakespeare. He wanted to be Schubert when he was at the Royal College of Music and so did plenty of other young aspiring song composers. It's, it's not a ticket to an asylum. Um, so when he believes he's Shakespeare and he's rewriting Shakespeare plays, on one level it's bonkers. On another level, it's actually a really interesting kind of getting, getting into the, standing in the shoes of a genius that you really admire, understanding their style from the inside, it's the kind of thing a song composer does. You, know, you get a poem, you really identify with it, you absorb it, and you turn it into something new by setting it to music. When he writes The Tempest, it's the same principle. It's just one that pushes boundaries that we're not used to seeing pushed. And as you say, he continued to write uh, poems yeah. and songs. When you look at the, the art that he was producing, were they attempts to come to terms with what was happening in his mind and what he had experienced during the war? Well, you open these boxes and boxes of manuscripts with a certain set of expectations. This man's writing in an asylum. He desperately doesn't want to be there. He's going to be writing about misery and suffering and being in an asylum. And, and, and what's really interesting is he almost never mentions the asylum. Hardly ever. You could count, count the mentions on the fingers of one hand, probably. Um, but he does live in the war and, and actually in a very positive way. So when all the other war poets are saying you know, goodbye to all that, as, as Robert Graves titles his book in the late 20s, moving on, putting the war aside, getting on with their lives. Gurney can't do that. And actually, there's no reason why he should, because he has no future. He has no life to move on to in the late 20s and 30s. So he remains a war poet, and, and he becomes a brilliant one. His war poetry gets better and better and better. So, and he lives in his memory. Tiny, tiny details are so vivid from years before. Um, but then the rest of his poetry becomes quite modernist because there's a there's a sense that this kind of incarceration and separation from the literary world and no one's reviewing you, no one's really publishing you. It's it's terrible, but it's a kind of terrible liberation because you can do what he wants. You know, you, why not be Shakespeare? No, nobody's listening. Um, what happens if you write in a very disjointed way? 
what happens if you just draw the fragments of your life together into different shapes and just try them out and, and see what they look like. And, and what he comes up with is something that's almost like Ezra Pound. It's like the great modernist whose work is often pretty mad as well, but it's the work that's taught as the kind of canonical modernist poets you know, that we're all fed as undergraduates as these kind of great geniuses. And, and there's Gurney unpublished doing something just as interesting, just as brilliant in many, many of his poems. It's just we haven't read it. No one knows about it yet. Okay, well, it's a very powerful uh, story and a very tragic life. The book is called Dweller in Shadows, A Life of Ivor Gurney. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press. The author is Kate Kennedy. And Kate, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Thomas Power was second only to Curtis LeMay in forming the Strategic Air Command, one of the premier combat organisations of the 20th century. But he is rarely mentioned today. What little is written about Power describes him as LeMay's willing hatchet man, uneducated, unimaginative, autocratic and sadistic. But a new book seeks to overturn this appraisal. It's called To Rule the Skies, General Thomas S. Power and the Rise of Strategic Air Command in the Cold War. It's published in hardback by the Naval Institute Press. And I'm delighted to welcome the author Brent Zarnick to the show tonight. Brent, you're very welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me. This is uh, a real pleasure. Can we talk about uh, General Tommy Power? Maybe talk about his background first, because uh, there was uh, an Irish background. There was partly Irish heritage. Uh, Yeah, as a matter of fact, it was almost entirely Irish heritage. Uh, He was the the third um, child of of Irish immigrant parents. Uh, uh, Thomas Stack and Mary Power uh, left uh, Southern Ireland for New York City in 1900, and, uh, you know, Tommy Power, who would become General Thomas Power, was born in 1905. So uh, he had very, uh, uh, you know, very uh, solid Irish roots uh, in, you know, insofar as even his father was a, a merchant that traveled to, uh, uh, to Europe and Ireland specifically back and forth for most of his, uh, his work. So, um, you know, the Power family was, uh, you know, very uh, maybe not devout, but practicing Irish Catholics and uh, just uh, very much part of the Irish presence in the United States, certainly. And then through his sister's marriage, he also then got this connection with the British aristocracy. Yes, that was surprising when I started looking into his story is that, uh, you know, uh, history tends to know Thomas Power pretty well, you know, a little bit. At least they think they should know him. But uh, his sister, uh, older sister Dorothy, seemed to have a much more uh, colorful history uh, marrying a lot of, uh, you know, um, American millionaires and then eventually going to, uh, you know, marrying into British aristocracy, which was uh, an interesting story in and of itself. Uh, unfortunately, most of that story was cut by Naval Institute Press for pretty good reasons, but uh, very interesting uh, family. Absolutely. So talk to me about his involvement then uh, with what was then the, the Army Air Corps and I suppose his, his important role during the Second World War because he was the person who, I think, planned and led the firebombing of Tokyo. He did. Now, a lot of Air Force uh, leaders tend to have one war that they did a lot of very interesting things and sort of made their career in, and that's what they're known for. But uh, Tommy Power is a little different in that uh, he, was, he was an obscure you know, instructor for most of World War II. But um, 
you know, ultimately because of his experience with, uh, you know, training B-29 super, you know, the, the super heavy bomber crews in, uh, you know, the States during most of the war, he ended up getting a wing command position leading um, a wing of B-29s at Guam under uh, Curtis LeMay, who was, you know, commander of the 21st Bomber Command uh, in uh, the Pacific, uh, about ready to take the war to Japan. And, uh, and yeah, he was pretty much an obscure officer until then. And then, uh, then and then he led the, uh, the first raid on Tokyo with uh, incendiary bombs in a new way. Uh, instead of going very, very high and dropping bombs from high altitude using visual, uh, you know, visual bombing, he planned, uh, you know, Brigadier General Power at this time planned the raid to go uh, very low using incendiary bombs by, uh, led by radar bombing, which he was uniquely good at. And it just devastated uh, Tokyo, uh, far more effective than any other kind of bombing uh, done to that point to Japan. And ultimately, it was the firebombing that he led and sort of proved the, um, you know, the concept that uh, really brought Japan to her knees. Um, you know, in, uh, in World War II, the atomic bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, while maybe more psychologically important, were nowhere near as destructive as the incendiary raid. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is normally, you know, a general officer does one really important thing and then it's just sort of lost or he's he's had his career. Right. There's nothing going forward. But then, uh, you know, power just kept going higher and higher since then or after that to become one of the most important general officers in the Air Force, at the very least, for uh, a good portion of the Cold War. Yeah, let's talk about that and Strategic Air Command. What exactly is Strategic Air Command? Because during the Cold War in particular, and uh, when it's set up, it seems to have this incredibly important function. Well, Strategic Air Command uh, was one of the um, was one of the first major commands of the Air Force, but it was meant to be the long-range striking arm of the Air Force. And in you know 1947, 1948, into the 50s, uh, long-range strike was with atomic weapons. So uh, SAC was really the, uh, the nuclear striking arm and later, you know, for, you know, the nuclear deterrent arm of, uh, of the United States uh, during the Cold War, keeping the uh, Soviet Union from invading uh, Western Europe. And, uh, you know, the peace was, you know, peace is our profession was their motto. Uh, that motto came out when Power was the uh, commander-in-chief of Strategic Air Command, but uh, they were uh, undoubtedly had the most firepower of any combat organization, you know, um, before or since. Uh, but really, uh, they were also unique in that they never actually launched one of their weapons in anger which is uh, something that can't be said for many military organizations. Let's talk about the, the popular image of him, because there's this popular image of him as being yeah, sadistic, brutal, stupid. Now, your work shows that, you know, he's clearly not stupid. Some of this organization that he's involved with is, is really quite sophisticated. But the popular images of him not being afraid of nuclear war, of him uh, talking about, say, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, about bombing the Soviet Union, destroying it, killing all their people, people that there is that image of him as someone who you know was prepared to go all the way if necessary sure uh well you know i've uh been in the uh air force for for many years mostly as a reservist but uh i had heard of of 
you know, General Power since I was a cadet, and I believed it, that he was, uh, you know, the, uh, the less educated, dumber, more evil version of Curtis LeMay. Uh, but when I started looking into him for the biography, and I didn't start out by thinking I was going to write a biography, I was, think, I was looking at old, the old Air Force Space Program, and his name just kept coming up and up. Uh, you know, it, it's the caricature of him as, you know, stupid and evil has some foundation. It's just a very misinterpreted foundation. Uh, General Power, for instance, did not go to college. Uh, and most people would tend to, you know, equate that as not being very smart. But he wasn't able to go to college because his father abandoned the family when he was 16. And he had to go to work in, you know, New York City construction to, uh, to help the family. Uh, but he was extremely bright because he taught himself two years of college, uh, you know, locking himself in the New York City Public Library for six months, <laughs> which is how he got to become an aviation cadet. Uh, and then he had uh, a very dark sense of humor, or at least what I would consider a very dark sense of humor, when he would, uh, you know, joke about nuclear warfare to uh, mostly civilian members of uh, Robert McNamara's Defense Department. Uh, now, most people take that at face value, uh, or at least historians have taken that at face value, where it was like, hey, if, you know, at the end of the war, Powers did say this, if at the end of the war there are two Americans and one Russian left, we win. Uh, some people take that as, you know, serious, um, when if you really look into his character, it seems pretty clear to me that he didn't have a whole lot of respect for uh, inexperienced uh, you know, so-called defense experts straight out of college and uh, let it be known by dark humor like that. But um, uh, a lot of his memory is also sort of, you know, intertwined with, uh, you know, popular fiction and Dr. Strangelove, if you remember that movie uh, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb by Stanley Kubrick, uh, had a character that uh, went insane, a strategic air command wing commander that went insane and uh, started a uh, uh, you know, launched a preemptive strike against Russia, and that was pretty much the the plot of the story. And General Ripper is definitely modeled after, uh, in my opinion, definitely modeled after General Power. And because he, you know, didn't make friends with a lot of civilian defense intellectuals, and uh, was you know parodied so well in you know classic movies. People have just tended to believe that he was, you know, dumb and evil and really wanted to go to war. Uh, but if you read him and study him like I did, it's very clear that he was convinced that the only way that you could deter a nuclear war and keep the peace during the Cold War was to make sure that the enemy, in this case the Soviet Union, knew for a fact that if things got bad enough, the Americans would you know, launch nuclear weapons. And in order to do that, you had to have a commander, you know, their strategic nuclear commander, act a little bit insane. <laughs> Just enough to know that, uh, you know, hey, the president, uh, it, you know, in the Soviet mind, the president might waffle, but uh, the commander of strategic air command would not. 
Brilliant. Well, Brent, it is a fascinating story and you tell it so well in the book. And there's a great piece as well about uh, his role as as a visionary when it came to space. And uh, he really was someone who set out to rule the skies, as the title suggests. To rule the skies, General Thomas S. Power and the rise of strategic air command in the Cold War. The book is published in hardback by the Naval Institute Press. The author is Brent Zarnick. And Brent, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Witnesses to the brutal murder of their families and the violent destruction of their communities, a cadre of Jewish women in Poland, some still in their teens, became the heart of a wide-ranging resistance network that fought the Nazis. They bribed Gestapo guards with liquor, assassinated Nazis and sabotaged German supply lines. And their story has been told in a brilliant new book, The Light of Days, Women Fighters of the Jewish Resistance. It's published in hardback by Virago. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, Judy Battalion, to the show tonight. Judy, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. It's an extraordinary story about really remarkable and incredible women. How come these heroic feats haven't been properly recognised and celebrated before now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, These stories are so dramatic. They're so compelling. And they involve so many women. I, I... I found out about hundreds of young Jewish women who were, you know, doing all kinds of forms of resistance from running soup kitchens through, as you said, blowing up Nazi supply trains and shooting Gestapo men in the head. And why didn't we know this story? Why didn't I know this story? Was it a major question throughout all my research? On the one hand, what happened? What is the story? On the one hand, what happened to this story? And I do have a section toward the end of the book where I I deal with this in more detail. But ultimately, it comes down, and I'll I'll be quick, it comes down to a few different factors. Some of them are political. Um, The way the Holocaust has been narrativized has been shaped by political forces. And often the story of Jewish resistance has been has been left out of that, has been silenced. Some of it is is zeitgeist as well. We're interested in different elements of the Holocaust and of World War II at different times. Um, And here, this is the question of women's history, which has often been silenced. I think now we're much more interested in women and, and, and the military women in World War II. Um, And then a lot of it is really a personal, a personal reasons. Many of these women did not tell their story until much more recently. They they weren't believed. And of course, I'm talking about the ones who survived. They they either weren't believed or they were accused uh, of collaborating, of sleeping their way to safety. They felt tremendous survivor's guilt. They, you know, they felt compared to their fellow survivors who had been through the camps. Uh, they, they, one woman said she hasn't had it so bad, even though she was running missions for the Red Army and helping to liberate Bialystok. She didn't tell her story. Uh, she almost felt she didn't merit it. And, and then finally, many of these women that I write about were so young during the war. After the war, they, they really needed to start over. They wanted to start fresh lives. They, they wanted to create families that were happy and, and normal and stable. And so for all those reasons, 
we hadn't heard these stories until now. And what we see is that resistance take very many different forms. You know, for some it was smuggling in bread, for others it was assassinations, for others it was, you know, even the very friendships that they had with each other. Absolutely. For some it was telling a joke and helping to alleviate fear uh, in, in a transport, in a situation. For others it was, you know, flinging Molotov cocktails and being guerrilla fighters in ghetto battles, blowing up Nazi tanks. Um, I, I write quite a bit about this role of courier girls, which were these young Jewish women who pretended to be Christian. They, they performed as Catholic Poles and they snuck in and out of ghettos, which for a Jew, they would be killed outside the ghetto. These women snuck in and out uh, constantly, connecting Jewish communities, connecting the ghettos, bringing information, bringing news, bringing bulletins, even hiding them in the braids in their hair. They would bring money. They would arm the ghetto undergrounds. Often they were the ones meeting with weapons dealers, buying guns and ammunition and explosives, hiding them in fashionable handbags in their pockets in teddy bears and bringing them back into the ghetto. And in some ways, they were perhaps better suited for these kind of work because people weren't going to expect this. They they were going to almost in a way take them for granted and then they could do all of this extraordinary work. Yeah, there are a few reasons why it was easier for young Jewish women to do this kind of work on the outside, on the Aryan side, outside of the ghettos. It was easier for women than for men. Firstly, women were not circumcised. Jewish men were circumcised. And so if, if they were suspected of being Jewish, they, they would simply be asked at gunpoint to drop their pants. Jewish women didn't have this physical marker of their Jewishness on their body. They were also, Jewish women were, uh, all, all education was mandatory in Poland for boys and girls in the 1930s. Um, and many Jewish families sent their sons to private Jewish schools, but they sent their daughters to public school, Polish public school. And in these public schools, these women, they became more, or I should say girls, they became more assimilated. They had many Catholic friends. They were aware of Christian habits and nuances and behaviors, and they learned to speak Polish. And they always talk about this like a Pole uh, without the creaky Yiddish accent. Um, and so even if a, a man, a Jewish man in the underground was going to do work on the outside, a Jewish woman always came with him. She did all the talking. She bought the train tickets. She, she, she negotiated. She bought anything. She, she, spoke, she, she could blend in. It was easier for women to disguise themselves. And then, of course, as you said, Nazi culture was so classically sexist. No one, no one expected women, no one expected this young, beautiful woman to have, you know, ammunition in her jar of marmalade. Why would she? Um, so women played to that as well. And Judy, what inspired you to to tell this story and how difficult was it to research it? I mean, I, I, I found out, and by the way, I found out about this story by accident. I was looking for something else at the British Library in London um, and happened to come across this, um, uh, a, an old dusty book um, with a blue fabric cover and gold lettering. And it, it was in Yiddish. It was called Freuden in the Ghettos, Women in the Ghettos. But even more unusual than the book, I happened to speak Yiddish. So I, I started reading this. I was interested in this artifact. I had not been looking for this. 
And it turned out to be this book filled with stories of young Jewish women who fought the Nazis uh, from primarily from the Polish ghettos. And you asked what inspired me to write it. I mean, these were simply stories. I, I had never heard anything like this. My own family are Holocaust survivors. My grandparents are Polish Jewish Holocaust survivors. Um, I grew up in a community of, of Holocaust survivor families. I'd never heard anything like, like these stories in content or in tone. And I, this, I, I knew I knew I had to write this. I knew I had to work on it. It took a long time it, until it came together as a, as a narrative nonfiction book. I, it would take on many forms before that. Um, but I, I, you know, this was a, a labor of love, but also a labor of duty. I, I truly felt I, I owed it to these women to tell these incredible stories. It was very difficult. Uh, it was difficult emotionally. It was difficult intellectually. Uh, it was difficult logistically. I was dealing with archives and, and testimonies and people in, ver in many countries and across languages. And for all those reasons, partially why it took so long for me to, to put this book together. I think the time was well spent and you've done a brilliant job with it. It's called <laughs> The Light of Days, Women Fighters of the Jewish Resistance, published in hardback by Virago. The author, Judy Battalion. And Judy, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book explores how America's decline paved the way for Donald Trump's rise, sowing division and leaving the country vulnerable to its greatest challenge of the modern era. The book is called When America Stopped Being Great, A History of the Present. It's published in hardback and paperback by Bloomsbury Continuum. And I'm delighted to welcome the author Nick Bryant to the show tonight. Nick, you're very welcome. Patrick, it's just fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me on. Nick, first of all, congratulations on the book and I see that President Biden is reading it. What message do you think he will take from it? Well, that was quite extraordinary. The White House released a picture of Joe Biden having a chat with his Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, uh, about a week ago. And some eagle-eyed Twitter follower noticed that on the shelf behind him, alongside the book by his son, Hunter Biden, was my book, When America Stopped Being Great. And he'd actually referred to it a couple of months ago at the White House, he talked about a book that had come out saying that America's best days were in the past. And we thought that sounded like my book, When America Stopped Being Great. And I think it was. And um, yeah, he's got a copy of it. Uh, hopefully he's reading it. What lesson will he learn? Well, I'm worried he'll take a very pessimistic uh, lesson from it because it ends very pessimistically. It ends by suggesting that the, the overarching mission of the Biden presidency as stated in his inaugural address, as stated in speeches ever since, to, to heal a deeply divided nation is a kind of mission impossible. I, I've been covering America as a BBC correspondent for over 20 years. I've been studying America you know, since I was a kid. Um, I've never known a country so divided in, in the modern era. People say about the 1960s being divided, but the big difference was then there was a politics that was workable. In times of national crisis, like the civil rights movement in the early 60s, members of both parties, the Republican and Democrat, came together to forge the big legislation to redress some of those problems. I mean, the landmark civil rights reforms of the 1960s were bipartisan. That bipartisanship has disappeared. It felt like I was reporting on two Americas, and it felt like the divisions had become so deep and so angry 
that they had become unbridgeable. And I'm worried that that's a rather pessimistic and dismal lesson that Joe Biden will take from the book. Instead of blaming everything on Donald Trump, you go a little bit further back and you you say a lot of very interesting things about Ronald Reagan. Why did things go wrong under Reagan, do you think? Ronald Reagan was certainly one of the godfathers of polarisation, which feels an odd thing to say, given the fact that he won a landslide election and he won 49 out of 50 states in 1984. 1984 was actually the first year I visited America. It was on the eve of the Los Angeles Olympics, that extraordinary American summertime of resurgence when after the long national nightmare of Vietnam, Watergate, the Iranian hostage crisis, America really did get its mojo back and it got its self-confidence back. And that's why Ronald Reagan on the right, but on the left as well. But he created a modern-day version of the presidency that exists to this day, which is really based on the front office aspects of the job, the performative aspects of the job, rather than the detailed, nitty-gritty back office aspects of the job. That was one way in which Ronald Reagan contributed to the rise of Donald Trump. He brought together the modern conservative movement as well. He was the first candidate, for instance, to be endorsed by the National Rifle Association, the NRA. Even though he wasn't a devout Christian himself, he brought in the evangelical right. He promoted the kind of tax cuts and very sort of free market economy, uh, which has led to a lot of the iniquities in the American economy, which, uh, you know, a broken politics stems from a broken economy. And he also turned Americans against government. I think that's one of the crucial things that Ronald Reagan did. In his inaugural address, he said, government isn't the, the solution to our problem. It's the problem itself. Up until that point, a lot of Americans had liked government, especially after the New Deal had, had sort of dealt so well with the Great Depression. But Ronald Reagan turned Americans against government. He turned Americans against governmental institutions. And when people turn against institutions, they tend to pin their faith in individuals. And again, that explains the rise of Donald Trump. And it's not just Republican presidents that you you criticise. You also have some interesting things to say about Bill Clinton's presidency. Yeah, I mean, often the 1990s are seen as this great decade of peace and prosperity. As Americans had never had it so good. And the economy was booming. America had won the Cold War. Things just looked rosy. They, they ended the American century on a real high. But I argue that a lot of the problems of the 21st century were pregnant in the 1990s. When you look at the, the Great Recession of 2008, well, it stemmed directly from Bill Clinton's decision to deregulate Wall Street. And that was crucial. Uh, if you look at how the digital economy and the online economy has caused so many problems in terms of the sort of fairness of the economy and the, the difficulty that people are having sort of navigating not only a globalized economy, but a digitized economy, a lot of that stems from the 1990s when Bill Clinton made a very active decision not to regulate the Internet. There were so many startups failing, he just thought you didn't need to do it. Um, you know, you look at the problem of black incarceration. Um, that was a product of the 1990s. You look at political lying. You know, Bill Clinton was a very successful political liar uh, in denying that he had an affair with Monica Lewinsky, even though he knew full well he did. Um, it bought him time uh, to survive the Monica Lewinsky crisis. Um, a lot of the problems that we have, are experiencing now, you can really trace them back uh, to the Bill Clinton presidency of the 1990s. When you look at Barack Obama's time in the White House, how would you assess those two terms? Because on the one hand, he offered a huge amount of, there was a huge amount of new promise there, but then maybe a criticism that it wasn't all delivered upon. Yeah, I think to the outside world and to many in America, obviously, 
Barack Obama looked like the personification of American renewal. Um, again, America found itself down in the dumps after the Great Recession, after the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, there was a real sense that America was in terminal and unstoppable decline. And along comes this once in a century politician, really, Barack Obama, with these extraordinary sort of oratorical gifts and this extraordinary personal story and this extraordinary achievement of becoming the first black president, uh, an African-American occupying a White House built by slaves. But, uh, you know, certainly in racial terms, the fact that he became president was more significant than the eight years that he spent as president. He didn't want his presidency to be defined by his skin color. He didn't want it to be defined by race. Um, you know, he, in many ways, he sort of rescued the American economy, but he didn't manage to fix the American economy in a way that it worked for everybody. In trying to sort of withdraw from America's endless wars, he created a perception amongst a lot of Americans that the country looked weak on the international stage. So when Donald Trump said, it's time to make America great again, a lot of people thought that resonated more strongly. And of course, he also sort of brought that sort of celebrity president, that presidency, that performative presidency that was pioneered by, by Ronald Reagan into the digital age. And again, that plays into the hands of Donald Trump. And finally then, Nick, when you go back in time to the 1980s and the optimism of the Reagan presidency, the, the charm of that he brought to the office, and then you look at Donald Trump and the anger and the, the nastiness, how did things get so dark? The character of the Republican movement has, has changed, I think. And the thing that always struck me about America in the 1980s when I went there first as a teenager and, and experienced that extraordinary gold rush of the Los Angeles Olympics, you know, America just seemed so confident about the future. There really did seem to be this belief that, you know, the kids would have a better life than their parents, which has always been the essence of the American dream. But I think nowadays, you know, when Donald Trump said the American dream is dead, an awful lot of Americans believed him because they didn't see their kids leading more abundant lives. They saw their kids being saddled with debt if they went to college. They saw their kids struggling to get a, a sort of foot on the property ladder, all of these kind of things. I think the sort of hope and the optimism of America has gone. The sort of promise of America isn't as strong for Americans as it was when I first went there in the in the mid-1980s. And what has replaced that, I think, is a, is a sense of fear and a sense of paranoia. And alas, the COVID crisis um, has accelerated and, and sort of deepened those those trends, which have been sort of in action really now for 40 or 50 years. Oh, well, Nick, it's a brilliant book and it's, I think, a story that people will be thinking about. It. There are themes that people will be wrestling with here as well because we take such an interest in American politics and, of course, it has such an impact on the rest of the world as well. It's called When America Stopped Being Great, A History of the Present. It's published in hardback and paperback by Bloomsbury Continuum. The author is Nick Bryant and thanks a million for joining us tonight. Patrick, it's been my great pleasure and maybe I'll end with the comment that Joe Biden gave me an hour uh, during the caucus in 2020. I'm Nick Bryant from the BBC. I said, have you got time for a word? He looked at me. He smiled. He said, 
I'm Arif. And that clip went viral in this country. So I have seen that clip on Twitter. So I hadn't realised that was you asking the question. That is a very famous clip. Uh, I think it went viral around the world, but we all watched it here in Ireland. Uh, what can we say? We love his Irishness. If anyone can make America great, uh, to 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 uh, borrow the the, the the terrible Trumpian line, it's going to be the the great Irish man in the White House. We'll see. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together. It's Susan Calvin, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week for the October Bank Holiday Weekend, we'll play you back our show on Sitting Bull. And then in two weeks' time, we'll bring you a graphic history of the Middle Ages, discuss violence in Dublin at the end of the War of Independence, and preview a new film on women during the decade of commemorations. So join us next week and the week after on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History on News Talk.